0: So the first presentation will be by Ishmael Washid, and it will be on Sufism scholarly networks and territorial integration in the early modern Sahara,
1: 1600 to 1800. Thank you. Uh, first of all, I want to thank you very much, uh, Usman Khan and the organizer of the conference for having me here for this invitation, it's a great pleasure for me to present some elements of my research on early modern Muslim scholarship and le- Islamic law legal practice in the in the Sahara and the Sahel. Decades of pioneering historical and philological <coughs> research have established the pivotal role played by Southern Saharan clerical groups called zawaya or tulba in the making of Islamic culture in West Africa. The variegated religious and scholarly traditions that developed from the 15th century onwards among nomads and oasis dwellers in what is today Mauritania, Northern Mali and Niger have significantly shaped the ways in which West African Muslims engaged with the textual and institutional resources of Islam. In the field of Sufism, one may only think of the large receptions of the Kunta writings or the Saharan roots of the spread, spread of the Tijaniya during the 19th century. Conversely, Saharan ulama were keen observers and commentators of sub-Saharan societies, reflecting on ethnic identities, social hierarchies, and the overarching question of legitimate political rule. In short, the emergence of what one may call a West African approach to Islamic civilization is intrinsically tied to the interdependence of Saharan and Sahelian worlds. The exploration of these shared inter- and inter- religious and intellectual traditions between Saharan and sub-Saharan societies was furthermore essential in challenging interpretational models inherited from French Islam Noir-style colonial historiography and its artifici- artificially constructed ethnic and religious boundaries. Yet the remarkable intellectual dynamism that Sahalo Saharan Islam witnessed since at least the fifteenth century truth on even larger patterns of cultural interaction, which contributed to bridge the gap between the two Africas. to paraphrase Gilen Leiden. We know that since the little, the, little uh, the Middle Ages, extensive scholarly networks have connected West Africa to other parts of the Islamic world. These networks became even more important during the 17th and 18th centuries, when the multiplication of scholarly and religious centers in the Sahel and the Sahara generated an increasing demand not only for books, but also for personal relations with ulama from the Maghreb and the Middle East. In this paper, I will focus on an intermediate level within these trans-Saharan intellectual exchanges which was crucial for both the making of a shared religious and scholarly culture among Saharans and Sahelians and their integration within the wider Muslim world. I'm referring here to a network of scholars and Sufis from the southern edge edge of the Sahara and the oasis of (coughs) of present-day Morocco and Algeria, so mainly Wadra, Ra, Tafilad, Wat Saura and Tuat. Although this network provided the main conduits through which those books, ideas, and prayers were circulated that proved to be of crucial importance for the reconfiguration of West African Islam during the late 80s and the 19th centuries, it has received surprisingly little attention from historians or Islamists. Yet it was more than a mere prelude to the later rise of the Qaderiyya or the Tijaniya, just to speak about Sufism, The scholarly and religious landscape between the southern Morocco and Algeria and the Sahel as unfolded by contemporary literary sources can be usefully compared to what Shahab Ahmed has described in the case of medieval Central Asia as, I quote, as distinct intellectual space within which the ulema perpetuated what seems to have been a relatively self-contained intellectual tradition. As such, it offers a different vision of Muslim scholarship and Sufism in West Africa, a vision that, in my view, tends to be overshadowed by the transformation of the 19th century. Following Shahab Ahmed's proposition to remap the Islamic world in terms of intellectual rather than political geography, I argue that in the early, during the early modern period, Regionally-centred patterns of academic relations developed across the Sahara, putting in touch various autonomous scholarly communities. In the case of southern Morocco and Algeria, these communities had emerged during the 15th and 16th centuries in the context of a global restructuring of trans-Saharan space. With regard to the southern Sahara, we (coughs) observed that in the course of the 17th century, a number of oases, such as Wadan, Shinkid, Arawan, turned into major centers of Islamic erudition. While in places where scholarly traditions have already existed since the Middle Ages, like Walata, local literary traditions started to flourish. More bookish in its outlook, since at its center light the transmission of texts and engagement in scholastic debates, rather than the project of reforming, so- reforming society through political action, even though it should be highlighted that the 17th and the 18th century Sahara also had it, its jihads and movements of religious reform, the new intellectual top, top, topography that was taking shape nonetheless provided the cultural background for the great changes of the 19th century. In the Marx remarks to follow, I will mainly draw on the famous biographical dictionary no. Al-Fatih Shakur Fi Ma'rifat Ayyan Ulama Takrur, written by the 18th century scholar Atalib Muhammad uh, Ibn Abi Bakra Sadiq al-Bartili, al-Bartili from Walata in present Mauritania. My presentation is divided into two unequal parts. I will be first concerned with the scholarly relations between southern Morocco and the Sahara. The main part will then be devoted to... a reconstruction of two trans-Saharan chains of transmission through which the Shedili tradition of the Nasiriyah was diffused among local Muslim scholars reaching present-day Mauritania and the Azawad in the course of the 18th century via the oasis of Chouad in southern Algeria. In the 16th and 17th centuries, the Saharan confines of Morocco saw the establishment of a number of zawiyas, where the study of Sufism was closely associated to the diffusion of Islamic literacy and law among rural populations. The best known case is that of the Sufi network found, founded in the middle of the 17th century by the scholar and saint Ibn Nasir al-Dar'i because of its prominent role in the history of early modern Morocco. Located in the oasis of Tamgrut in the Dra'a Valley, the Zawiya developed into a vast religious movement that was highly popular among the learned elites of the Alawite state before it was later eclipsed by the rise of the Tijaniyya Moreover, the Nasiriyah became a powerful economic actor specializing in trans-saharan trade and large-scale irrigated agriculture. During the same period in the neighboring Tafilat region, other scholarly lineages also became highly influential in promoting the ideal of religious excellence as the synthetic mastery of theology, kalam, law, fiqh, and mysticism. The development of Muslim scholarship traditions in the Tefilet has so far not received much attention from researchers. Yet biographical dictionaries, chronicles or travelogues clearly attest to the significance of the region as a place of learning for students from northern Morocco and the Sahara alike. While exploring Muslim scholarly culture in the 18th century oasis of Tuat, situated about 400 million miles further south, I quickly realized that most of the local leading jurisconsults cultivated strong ties with their Filali colleagues. For example, the fatwa collection attributed to a certain uh, Muhammad al-Alim al-Zajlawi contains many questions and anecdotes relating to az we study study years among scholars in the Tafilalt such as Ibrahim al Sayyid Jilali ibn Ahmad al-Ahmiyani and Abdul Wahid al-Quddusi and with the Nasiris of Tamghroute an important intellectual figure from Tafilalt who, who was held in high, high esteem by Saharan ulama was Hilali, was Ahmad al-Habib al-Lamati he, has, he even has his own entry who, who, was, he, who died in the middle of the 18th century. He even has his own entry in the fatshakur Shakur. Still today, his writings are prominently featured in manuscript collections across the Sahara and the Sahel. The fatshakur Shakur f- f- preserves furthermore the memory of three former students of Ahmed al-Habib from Walata in Mauritania. About one of them, Muhammad bin Uthman al-Wali, who later died in Taghudand in the Moroccan Soos, we read, for example, quote, then he traveled to the, in, in the quest of knowledge to Sijil Masa, where he encountered the pole of his time, Qutb Zamanihi, Ahmed al-Habib al-Sijil Masi, and he learned from him. It is said that he studied with him the seven, the seven, seven readings of the Qur'an, of the Qiraat. Let us, let us now turn to the Trans-Saharan expansion of the Nasiriyah. When writing the history of Sufism as a major religious current attracting large parts of the populations in West Africa, it is commonly contended that things really started only in the second half of the 18th century with the spread of the Kunta Qadiriya following the remarkable career of Mukhtar al kunti and the subsequent arrival of the Tijaniya. Of course, literary sources like the Fath Shakur leave no doubt that within Muslim scholarly circles, the affiliation to Sufism has been a well-established option within the educational curriculum since the very beginning of Islamic higher culture in West Africa, while the practice of ritual invocation of dhikr and religious chanting, madh, was, and still is, obviously widespread. Yet, at at least to my knowledge, no in-depth study has been devoted to the question of how Islamic mysticism was understood and practiced in the Sahara and the Sahel, before the Qadiriyya-Tijaniya re- renewal and how it related to other parts of the Islamic West. Seen from this perspective, the Fat Shakur provides some highly interesting insights. The evidence I have gathered from diverse biographical entries suggests that the expansion of the Nasiria in Morocco was somehow paralleled by the diffusion, the diffusion of its doctrines and prayers across the Sahara. We learn, for instance, that at the beginning of the 18th century, the Qadi and Juris-Consult Abu Bakr al-Hajj Isa al-Ghalawi from Walata undertook the Hajj, the pilgrimage to Mecca, in company of the son and successor of Ibn Nasir, Ahmed bin Muhammad, who not only prayed with him during their journey, but also taught him the litanies of the order. Anhu al وَالْوِرْدُ there is, however, a, fundament, a fundamental difference in the diffusion of the Nasiria in the Sahara and the Sahel if compared to its northern expansion. While well, in the case of Morocco, Tamkrud and Ibn Nasir's descendants remained at the center of the network's activities, the southern spread of the Nasiriyah followed the same patterns of knowledge transmission as in other disciplines of the Ilm, traditional Islamic sciences. Namely, through the individual encounter between master and disciple. These encounters eventually led to the establishment of a chain of autonomous Zawiyas along the, the central trans-Saharan trade route between Tefilalt and present-day southern Mauritania. With the, with the use of the Shakur, I was able to reconstruct two main channels in the transmission of the Nasiri way during the Tariqah, during during the first half of the 18th century and it's striking to note that in both scholars and saints from the oasis of Tuat were of particular importance born in Zabit in northern Tuat so, one picture of <laughs> Zabit oasis of Zabit Atalib Sidi Ahmed at Twati is remembered as the first to have introduced the Nasiriya in the oasis of Tishit in southern Mauritania he was himself a disciple of Ahmed bin al Qadir al-Tawustati, a scholar and Sufi from the Zawiyah of Ibn Ghazi in Tafilalt, who had studied with Ibn Nasi in Tamkrud before emigrating to the southern Sahara. We thus observe again the intermediate role of the Tafilalt Zawiyahs in connecting Saharan populations to the Moroccan scholarly milieu. The Fat Shakur further provides us with information about his religious style, combi- combining an, an erudite approach to Sufism with a pietistic posture. We read that he spent every day reciting the first part of the Shahada several thousand times in a solitary cell in a khalwa. Then, I quote, when he finished, he returned to his home and read his books. After this, he conversed with the people of his household. He was continuously engaging with mysticism. In his personal library, you find many books on Sufism and similar topics. al mentions several disciples of Ahmed Atwati from what is today Mauritania, among them some members of his own family. One of the most emblematical of Atwati students seems to have been a certain Atalib, Muhammad bin Atalib, Umar al-Khatat, who judging from, from the genealogical chain, the nisba quoted by al probably had Tuareg origins. al Khatat apparently was a distinguished scholar in tishid, in tishid, specializing in many fields, legal studies, theological mo- logic mantiq, grammar, mathematics his- hisab, and even occult sciences ilm-sir. He too was a prolific author of writing scholarly works and commenting on Sufi poetry where, I quote al His marvelous words on the topic reflect his share in the knowledge of the truth. The second chain of transmission perceptible in the Shakur contrasts somewhat with this scholarly approach to Sufism. It seems closer to models of charismatic sainthood in the Maghrib which have been intensively studied by anthropologists and historians since the 1980s. At the same time, it hits to an unexplored connection between the diffusion of ha- hagiographical, hagiographical cycles, such as the Shediliya and Osiriyya, and the dissemination of Shurfa, Shurfa lineages across the Sahara, the Sahara during the early modern period. On the eve of the rise of, the, of Kunta Sufism in the second half of the 18th century, a Sharifian family whose Zawiya is situated in present-day Regan, on the, southern, on the most southern, southern point of Tuat, became influential in diffusing, diffusing the Nasiria in Walata, and among the populations of the Haut, of the region around Walata in Mauritania, and the neighbouring Azawad. Its origins go back to the migration of a branch of Alawid Shurfa from Tafila, again the Tafilai region, the Aouledji di Hamou Bilhaj, who, while engaging in trans-Saharan trade with Timbuktu, settled in several villages in Tuat during the 16th, 17th centuries and grew into one of the most powerful Shurafa groups in the region. So this is one of their uh, oases in in Tuat. In the late 17th century, one of its members, Mawla Muley Abdullah, established a zawiya in in Rikyan and as a celebrated Sufi saint, cultivated a large following in the oases of southern Tuat and the Azawad. Still today, the annual festival organized in his honor, his Ziyara, on the first of May, attracts thousands of visitors. So, this is his uh, grave, and this is one picture from from the, from the Ziyara. Mulay Abdallah's biography, just as the history of his tariqah, still needs to be studied, and therefore, to my regret, I can only I cannot say much about it. What is important for my purpose here, however, is that Mulay Abdallah was introduced to the Nasiriyah by a Sufi scholar based in the West Saura region, about uh, 450 miles north of Tuad. It's the neighboring region to, to the Tefiland. If we go back to the card, so. It's in the north of Timimun, if you. So this, this scholar, his name is uh, Muhammad bin Abiziyan, himself, a Sharif Idrisi, claiming descent from the Prophet, we are one of the f- via one of the founding figures of Moroccan Sufism, Abd al-Salam al-Mashishi, the famous uh, Sufi saint, teacher of Ash'ari, etc. So you see how these legends connect different places in the Islamic West. Sidi Bouziane, as he is called in local colloquial Arabic, was born in the oasis of Tarid, and after studies in Fez and the Tafilalt, had founded its own zawiya in the small hamlet of Kanetsa, which progressively developed into an autonomous social local Sufi network, the Ziyaniyya. Teachings and litanies of the tariqa were nonetheless those of the Nasiriya into which Sidi Bouzian had received initiation during his stay in tefil At this stage of my research, I'm unfortunately unable to provide more details about the relationship between the two, Mawlai Abdullah and Muhammad bin Abi Ziyan, and how the former managed to launch its own Sufi movement in southern Tuat, which is locally known as the Riyaniya, the picture becomes nonetheless clearer with Mowlai Abdallah's son and successor, Mowlai Abdul malik He has a long entry in the Fatshakur where al presents him as an accomplished and charismatic Sufi saint. The biographical notice devoted to Mowlai Abdallah Abdul malik in the Fatshakur draws, draws on many themes that are characteristic of medieval and early modern Maghribi ha- ha- hagi- hagiography. Its devotional practice, centering on the study of the Quran and on individual retreats, is considered as exemplary. He is further described by Bartili as an adept of religious chanting, preaching, and hagiographic story- storytelling. At the same time, he seems to have been much feared by his contemporaries, even by his I quote brothers and children, as we are told, for his capacity to, capacity to curse, which again constitutes a common mo- motive in Islamic hagiographical discourse, at least in the Mahrib. Yet, when relating some of his miracles, Karamat, Al-Bartili brings us back to a more specific Saharan setting. We learn about Mulay Abdul Malik arbitrating a violent conflict opposing two Shurfa lineages lineages in Tuat, or how he miraculously intervened to save the members of a lost caravan from dying of thirst in the Tazaruf desert, one of the most desolate parts of the Sahara, separating the oasis of Tuat from the Bilat takrur Due to its geographical situation precisely at the northern terminus of the Tazaruf desert, the Zawiya of Regen was since its foundation highly involved in mediating relationships between the Tuat and the southern side of the Sahara. The Fat Shakur again provides us with some elements that strongly encourage further investigation on the matter. We are informed that, that Mulay Abdel Malik has sent one of his disciples, probably a family member named Mulay Zaydan, across the desert to diffuse his tariqah. According to Al Bartili, he visited the Bilad al Takrur and Walata four times and received an enthusiastic welcome from the local population. Through al-Bartili's biographical notice, Mulay Zaydan appears indeed as a rather complex and contrasting saintly figure. On the one hand, his religious style mirrors that of his master, Abdul Malik, with regard to his formaturgic capacities and the admirative fear, khawf, he inspired to most of his contemporaries. On the other hand, he was deeply involved in local politics, siyasa, competing with powerful Bedouin groups such as the Aula with whom he had even engaged once in open battle near Tawudani in the Azawad. The case of the Shurfa Sufis of Regan and the southern transmission of the Nasiriyah in general, adds in my view an important new layer to our knowledge of intellectual exchanges across the pre-colonial Sahara. It illustrates how scholarly and religious affiliation circulated via a network of autonomous centers of Muslim erudition neatly situated along one of the main channels of trans-Saharan mobility from the later later Middle Ages until the present. It is unfortunately beyond the scope of this presentation to discuss the possible correlation between the decision taken by the leaders of the Regania to diffuse their esoteric and exoteric ilm in the Southern Sahara knowledge in the Southern Sahara and their economic investments. Suffice it to say here that the different Tuati fatwa collections as well as other local sources on which I carried research for my first book amply attest that the Zawiya of Riggan, like most of the Zawiyas in southern Tuat, had important interests in caravan trade with the Sahel and and what is today Mauritania. i conclude. (laughs) (laughs) The aim of this paper was to shed light into the dynamics of intellectual exchange across the Sahara during the seventeenth and 18th century. The more regional forms and patterns of trans-Saharan <coughs> religious and scholarly relations that I have tried to reconstruct here on the basis of the evidence provided by the Fat Shakur enables us to develop a intimate, an intimate vision of the process through which a shared intellectual space emerged in the Sahalo-Saharan region, which was grounded in an ongoing dialogue between local ulama. The fact that the diffusion of, fusion of Sufism within Muslim scholarly circles was a central element of this process is, of course, by no means surprising if considered in a wider framework of early modern Islamic culture. Conversely, the richness of Albertili's notes of saints and scholars allow us to measure the degree to which very different forms and practices of knowledge associated with Islam as a religious tradition were mutually interacting, while being rooted, in a way or another, in a profound engagement with texts. This, to be sure, leads us to another topic not to be addressed here. But I would like to finish by emphasizing that the analysis of how Sufism was integrated as both a textual and a pietistic practice within Muslim scholarly culture might tell us, might tell us a different story about the way the Sufi turuk contributed to shaping Muslim societies in pre-colonial Western Africa, than the one we are used to read. Thank you for your attention.
0: So we will have uh, questions at the end of the panel presentations. And the next paper is by Alexis uh, Truyol, on uh, the study of mathematics in the Sahel from the fifteenth to the twentieth century. Uh,
2: so hi, my, my name is uh, Alexis Truyot. I'm doing a PhD in uh, history of mathematics uh, at uh, paris Sets and um, so I'm the, at the very beginning of my research. And this talk is going to be a general presentation of. Uh, what the body of mathematical manuscripts uh, in the region uh, really is, and uh, so it's very much a work in progress and uh, a an history that needs, still needs to be to be written. Um, so personally, the initial reason I became interested in mathematical uh, manuscripts of West Africa, I'm I'm a student of mathematics uh, at first, and um, looking back on the articles. Written after 2012 and the attacks on Timbuktu, uh, I noticed that kind of a trope of the of journalists uh, was to mention that among manuscripts uh, destroyed uh, were manuscripts on mathematics. Uh, generally, they would say, uh, "Yeah, yeah, among them, those manuscripts, there is also medicine, astronomy, and uh, and mathematics." And yeah, as a student of mathematics, I became interested in, in that. Um, so to find further information and kind of tangible information like name of text and name of authors, uh, I started to use um, catalog and amalgamation of the catalog and uh, sco- just call them for um, for anything related to, to, to math. So uh, I mainly use the West African Manuscript Database, uh, the series of Arabic literature of Africa, and under uh, MLG, I'm not able to pronounce the German name correctly uh, of Ulrich uh, Krebsbach, okay. and uh, <laughs> um, and, you, and use that to construct uh, a preliminary, a preliminary uh, corpus of manuscripts. And, uh, and what I'm mainly going to do in this paper is to use uh, and is to look from afar and using methods of quantitative history. To uh, derive research uh, research question, and sometimes zooming in on particular text to to complement. <coughs> so uh, all in all, I found uh, one hundred and sixteen mathematical manuscripts, uh, which is. Not really a very satisfying number uh, because it's both too big to read all of them, and uh, and it's also too small to uh, use quantitative history to have really definitive answer. You can use quantitative history to have relevant questions, but not really uh, relevant yeah answers. Um, yeah. So first, I would like to talk about the geographical and. Uh, Historical repartition of uh, the manuscripts of the corpus. Um, this is very very rough uh, because most of the texts are from authors that are not identified. But this is so the uh, the historical repartition. So the number of texts by uh, century, and uh, you see that it goes to crescendo, and uh, that the the yeah the, the eye is in the twentieth century. What is also interesting is that uh, the further you is um, closer to us you are in history, uh, the more the texts are written by local authors. And so uh, the texts of the 10th century are written by uh, uh, by author in uh, in Baghdad. Uh, the text of the 13th. Uh, there's two Moroccans, uh, 14th, it's, uh, it's from Andalus, and I cannot remember from the top of my head the, the authors. Um, in, the 10th century, uh, sorry, in the 18th century, uh, a local production really starts. Uh, there is a text in the 17th century that was written by a local author, but in the 18th century, that's where it starts in earnest. And uh in the 11th century there is only two tags that are not from West Africa, and after this, it's only uh it's only West Africa and mini Mauritania. Um yeah, the fact that it's mainly Mauritania, just very quickly, it's uh it might also be uh, an artifact due to the catalogs that I use that are a bit more heavy on the Mauritanian side, but yeah. <coughs> um um so uh, a second thing that is interesting is what I mean when I said that those mat- uh, manuscripts are manuscripts of mathematics. Uh, because there are several subjects uh, in mathematics. And, um, and they are not at all uh, evenly, re- uh, evenly matched in the, the corpus. So uh, among the texts of the corpus, only six are not dealing with arithmetic. All the rest is arithmetic. Um, Four are dealing with geometry, and and they are all very exciting. I've read three of them uh, for now. Uh, One of them is a geometry manual that was written in the late uh, 20th century, and I'm going to talk uh, a bit more in depth about it uh, a bit later. Uh, Two of them are a commentary of the 10th book of of Euclid's Elements uh, by... um, um, by uh, an author from Baghdad. That's the two texts from the from the tenth century, and uh, and one of them I haven't read yet, so sorry. And um, this absence of geometry is a uh, is a bit puzzling for two reasons. Um, mainly because uh, among the texts that uh, we have of geometry um those are not texts of beginners they are written by by people that know what they are doing and um and the commentary on the 10th book of the elements of euclid are very very hard to do to uh to read and uses uh elements from other books of the elements of euclid that are found nowhere that i know of in west africa but even if they are not found um Clapperton, in his second um, trip, mentioned that uh, uh, he gave as a gift to Mohamed Bello uh, a copy of the element in Arabic. And the response of Mohamed Bello was that uh, he already had it, but he was still <laughs> thankful for the gift. So, uh, so apparently the elements of Euclid do exist somewhere in West Africa. But in any case, yeah, they don't seem to be very, um, very widespread and uh and in general there is no not much of ge- not much of geometry and um and this is also um uh this is, this goes hand in hand with the lack of quantitative astronomy but i'm going to talk about it uh, a bit later and um yeah so for so uh one hundred and ten on arithmetic, uh, four on geometry. The two other, the two, other, uh, the two last, sorry, uh, are on algebra, and are written by, uh, by uh, the, both by the same guy. And I have been, I haven't been able to read them yet, so uh, I don't know. just in the title we said, yeah, so uh, it's a text on algebra. And um, so now, if we focus on Arithmetics, um, 67, uh, six uh, texts are uh, deri- derivative texts. So, versi- versification texts uh, were well, uh, roughly the same mathematical content, but very different mathematical form. And um, I think that's what this can tell us is uh, tells kind of indication of the curricula- mathematical curriculum, arithmetical curriculum. And uh, I know what uh, everyone in the, reg- in the region, uh, knew uh, if they were doing arithmetics. and uh, the content of, the, on the, of those texts, by the way, don't seem to change too much uh, from the from the 17th to the 20th century, and uh, and a lot of are anonymous, but not not all of them. Um, so, uh, what do people uh, knew when they were doing arithmetics? Well, the new addition subtraction, multiplication, division. And then the, uh, the new fraction, an addition of fraction, fraction reduction, and uh, extraction of square roots. And the extraction of square roots is actually uh, interesting because that's what the 10 books of, uh, books of uh, Euclid is all about. So yeah, it, it might make sense that this particular book of geometry was found in the region, but as of now I have nothing really conclusive on it. So a uh, second question we can ask looking at this is that uh, since there is really an accumulation in the 20th century, uh, how the colonial culture kind of affected the, uh, the, 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 the mathematical text produced? And uh, my, rep- my response to that is going to be a very elaborated I don't know. And um, so, from the French point of view, they pretty much ignored any mathematical production of the region. Uh, when you look at the colonial sources, it's pretty clear. The only mention that uh, people are doing uh, mathematics, it's found uh, in, ni- in 1937. And, uh, and there is this former student of Quranic school that is writing for the French administration. saying, look, that's what they do in Quranic school regarding uh, math, but it's, it's really not... Not that much. So yeah, that's the only thing I found. So I don't think that the French were that aware or concerned with uh, what was produced uh, mathematically in Arabic. Um, but the production did continue under colonial rule. So uh, this right here is, um, is, a, is a copy from a, from a manuscript uh, that was written by uh, al Awani, and uh, he died in uh, 1987. And, uh, and this is a manual of, uh, of arithmetics uh, Very um, that is that is very that is very uh, interesting and uh, and very cla- very classical in Norway. And uh, so it details uh, addition, subtraction, uh, multiplication, and, j- and the text uh, stops just short of division. It's it's a, only a fragment. And what is also interesting is that at the beginning of the text he, he, attributes, he attributes the invention of arithmetic to, to the prophets and and he's also and um, and he's also uh, deta- detailing the uses of arithmetic in trade in trade uh, for inheritance purposes and um, and finally he's quoting uh, authors from uh, <coughs> Uh, he's quoting an, uh, an author from Morocco another that doesn't been uh, able to identify, but that we're writing much earlier so uh since it's a fragment, it's a bit hard to be uh conclusive of if Korean administration really affected this text, but what is sure is that it's still very much grounded in uh in a tra- traditional outlook uh on uh, arithmetics the The second text is telling. <laughs> Pretty much the exact opposite uh, so it's a text that i'm currently uh, in the process of editing and that is found in a uh, knock shot. and that is a manual of geometry and uh, that is it's a very very dry manual of geometry uh, i mean yeah the typical uh, mathematical uh, manual that, that's that's it and um, so the first thing that is uh, noticeable is that is that it is a manual of geometry something that's Is just not found in really in the region, and he's talking about things that the other texts of geometry are absolutely not talking about. He's talking about the the calculus on angles, and uh, in this calculus, he's using uh, the sexagesimal base that uh, we that we currently use to calculate angles that is not used in uh, in other texts. So uh, and he's also using uh, yeah picture like this. That seems to to depict uh, an an instrument to calculate angles that wasn't used either. So uh, I think for this text, it's very possible that it was actually uh, influenced by uh, the colonial uh, administration. The the vocabulary that he uses, um, to describe mathematical uh, object is also pretty peculiar uh, in the context of the region and seems to be uh, closer to what was uh, used in Egypt in the in in uh, in the 1950s. So another, I mean, another way to question uh, what this corpus and what mathematics really. Really isn't mean, or something that uh, the corpus doesn't really uh, show us is the way maths uh, was used uh, in uh, in the region, and that's that's actually the subject of my PhD. That's what I'm interested in, and um, so um for the, for the use of math the uh, first use is uh, magic square, so I thought that mm-hmm. Ariella was going to talk about it and uh, she <laughs> she not but um those are t- used as talismanic artifacts and uh, basically it's a table um a square table where uh, the numbers of every line every column every di- diagonal uh adapt to the same to the same thing and uh, and in the region and then, uh, yeah, now in the BNF you find treaties on magic squares detailing. So hey, that's how you do a a three, uh, a three uh, a size three magic square, and then going up 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 up. And uh, yeah, there is a, a very a beautiful example in uh, at the BNF. And uh, a second uh, a second use is the one that the text uh, on arithmetic straight up uh, gives us. That is uh, the inheritance shares. And uh, so I, I have an example for Mauritania, and I can show you how it can be done. So uh, this is a problem that was given uh, by uh, Sheikh Sidia al-Kabir, um, 18th century. Mm-hmm. So uh, a person died and left behind two, two sons and three homophrodites. And what is, uh, what is, a, what is uh, the share of his inheritance that each group should have uh, on average? So. So, um, what is interesting is that he said that. Oh, yeah, the box are a bit messed up. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> the, the result uh, is this. And, um, and this is a very, very uh, nice <laughs> result. <laughs> because um, what it he, what he does, um, I think I have a slide, actually, that does it for me somewhere. Yeah. That's messed up too, OK. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the fractions are actually uh, symmetrical. Um, that means that the only differences are this. It, here it's a 3, here it's a 5. And this, it's a, here it's a minus, here it's a plus. There are, I have a non- uh, another thing that is interesting, that they have an internal structure. So here, there is a 5. Here, there is a 5. Here, item 5. Here, item 5. And uh, and last thing, they are beautiful, but they are also weird, because there is this. Here there is a five, and here there is a five. So it means that it's super easy to simplify the fraction. And the presenting like it is a deliberate choice. I mean, there is no way that he, uh, he, didn't, he didn't see it. And uh, the way that shakespeare's frame his uh, is answer results is very interesting. So. Basically, he's doing uh, this whole development on how to calculate the, the shares. Um, it's detailed in the paper, it's not really important here. And in the, in the end, he say he gets to this result for, for the sounds. He gets to these results, and afterwards he says, well, this can be decomposed like this. Okay. And then he skips these steps and say This is this. Which is absolutely not obvious. Because if, <laughs> because if you use the standard method that is found in the auto text of reducing a fraction, you get to this result. That is, yeah, that's beautiful, it must be so. And after this, uh, what he does is that he says, Well, 40 is, uh, 40 is 5 by 8. I mean, it's not written in the function. That's what I assumed. 40 is, uh, is 5 by 8, and it it, uh, it gives this. It gives this, and same same deal here, and it approaches this. So what it shows, I think, is a deliberate uh, a, de- a deliberate uh, push to have uh, an aesthetic, aesthetically, sorry pleasing uh, solution. And the fact that s- this is hidden technically in the text, I think all- also might suggest that there was a kind of a pride in the manipulation of numbers associated with it. Uh, so yeah, for the hemaphrodites it's um, it's kind of the same thing. Um, the only thing that is um to note is that uh, here when you simplify the fraction you actually find something that is perfectly fine so you really artificially multiply by five to have to to preserve the symmetry right another thing about this procedure though is that uh it's not only pleasing and everything it's uh it's really not obvious to find the initial de- decomposition this this one because this appears in this previous calculation, and so I, I think he knew that he was going to arrive at, the, at this uh, result. But this, the twelve on the on the twenty twenty five twenty, I I don't I don't know of a very simple way to arrive to to such solution. So I think that's this this text that is classified as a legal text. Uh, should it really be uh, should it really be um, studied in depth by uh, historians of science, and um, yeah, I think I'm going to stop to stop here on my presentation on this corpus. I can just tell tell you how I ended up uh, navigating it for for my actual PhD, um, basically, I took uh, factors that had nothing to do with math, nothing to do with anything else. Um, I'm using, uh, I'm working on a tribe. They wrote several mathematical texts uh, across, um, across the years and across different subjects. And just by using this, that's how I discriminate the text that I'm actually going to study uh, very much in depth. Yeah, so thank you.
0: I just want to share what, for me, was a delightful moment in Alexis's paper. uh, I'll quote what he said, that it was super easy to simplify the the (laughs) fraction, and that he didn't do it as a choice. I'll take his word for it that it was super easy. (laughs) And then another point where he said, oh, it's absolutely not obvious. Well, since the super easy wasn't obvious to me, this thing that is absolutely not obvious seems super easy to me. And then I would just say, oh, that when he was commenting on the push for the aesthetically pleasing solution, there was a moment when Alexis commented on the mathematics as being beautiful, but the combination of his words and his smile, for me, was aesthetically pleasing. And one of the things that I would say, oh... Uh, I wish I had studied mathematics. (laughs) Uh, All right, our last paper will be done by technological marvels. And so it will be coming from uh, the University of Alberta in Canada via uh, Skype. And it is Abu Bakr Abu uh, Qadir on the verse tradition, Muslim scholars, and transmission of Islamic knowledge in Mauritania, the land of a million poets. And just like Alexis said, it's super easy. to simplify the fraction. I'm assuming that it's super easy to run the Skype, but I have no idea if it is or not. OK. So. Be about a well, I can't see
3: anyone. It's as if I'll be talking to myself. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hello, everyone. Uh, thank you, Professor for the invitation. And uh, thank you, Norbert, for uh, the logistics and uh, the underground works as well as uh, Dennis. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, the initial plan was for me and uh, Dr. Ogunai to be in uh, Cambridge. They have uh, a full plate of chicken, full chicken, as we used to pack in the car. Uh, but thanks to the U.S. Embassy here for not making it happen. Uh, so my paper is a vast tradition, Muslim scholars and transmission of Islamic knowledge in Mauritania, the number of Armenian poets. So, I'll start my paper uh, with a personal experience because uh, it is uh, one of the reasons for uh, my Ph.D. project. So, uh, over a decade ago, I uh, left Damascus, Syria, for Mauritania, where I would end up spending several years as a student of sacred knowledge. I had the honor and privilege of studying in Humberland, one of several villages in Mauritania. That is home to a celebrated uh, traditional center of Islamic learning. On one occasion, uh, uh, a friend, uh, Abdul Malik, uh, a French student in the Mahbara, became ill. And in line with the Islamic etiquette guiding the right of the Sikh on their family, friends, and neighbors, one of our teachers, upon hearing of the student's illness, visited him. After some minutes of sitting with the patient, the Sheikh made uh, a very short uh, supplication for the student and uh, requested us to bring uh, the pen and paper. So upon uh, delivery, he looked up for a second, for a few seconds, then uh, brought his pen on the paper, scraped it on him as we worked. After he finished writing, he extended it to my sequences. We found out that the Sheikh had composed some short poetic verses uh, in the Rogers meters. The verses were about the student's state of health and uh, he was asked in, uh, to heal him. So, as, as funny that as some of us were, like myself, who wasn't used to that kind of uh, thing, uh, of the Sheikh's composition of the verses uh, in beautiful prosodic form, we we'll memorize the verses immediately. Uh, the first two verses read, and I'm not going to read this in the Mauritanian uh, uh, style. it's enough Now, before the Maliki, Shifa, and the Abdel Maliki. So, in the translation, it means uh, we hope uh, in the graciousness of Al Malik to the sovereign king that he heals Al Malik and may his well-in-place continue to exude pure, sweet fragrance. So, the same kind of scenario repeated itself at a later, at later point, but this time around, it was with another teacher of mine and myself, as the sick person. I encountered many other experiences during my stay and visits to different people in Mauritania. I came to realize that the tradition of verse is a fixture in the lives of Mauritanians. So, Mauritania is synonymous to the tradition of poetry and versification, hence the, the name Balad Biduan It which means uh, the land of Indian poets. Uh, the country is divided between the north and west Africa, with both regions comprising a cultural zone. This country is famous and her recent discovery in the Arab Muslim world uh, for the incredible quantity and quality of her poets and poetry. Uh, it is rare to find a Mauritania who has not memorized poems and uh, even rarer uh, for a Mauritanian scholar without a collection of poems. So book introductions and forewords, religious and pedagogical texts, banderic works such as the genesis of the Quran, polemics, and uh, even correspondences our side are versified in poetic forms in many parts of Mauritania. This tradition of verse in Mauritania reportedly emerged comparatively late in the 17th to 18th century. Uh, this was at the time similar poetic traditions were becoming marginal in other Islamic regions such as North Africa and the Middle East. Mauritania saw a paradigm shift in the intellectual production away in from prose. Major scholarly texts and jurisprudence logic and mysticism were transformed into poetry. New poetic compositions fed a flourishing deeper production. This poetic genre would later dominate and characterize Islamic scholarship since the last centuries. And my my questions are how and why did this uh, desert country emerge as one of the most prolific poetic cultures of the Islamic world? What impact did this development have on the articulation of Islam in a moment of intellectual and political transformation in West Africa, often known as the Age of So did the, the debates over linguistic pros uh, between the and the genealogical lineage between the Arab Hassani and other Mauritania social and ethnic group shape the emergence of this tradition? So my paper is. Uh, is part of ongoing research trying to investigate the emergence of a classical Arabic verse tradition of Mauritania and its character characterization of Islamic scholarship. Here, I talk of verse tradition as a poetic genre, so this includes share work, no uh, massification and others. So, as for my use of the term tradition, I do not mean it in the sense of an unchanging or static entity, but rather something. Uh, that through struggle goes through continual transformation as it is transmitted. My interest here is in, the, in understanding some of the questions I asked earlier. To do this, I attempt situating the emergence and establish, establishment of that tradition in Mauritania as a social tradition. And I locate its emergence in a specific geographical as well as social context. Because for us to understand its impact in, this, in the religious, intellectual, cultural, and political spheres, we must bear in mind the fact that the tradition developed, transformed in, and was transformed through different contexts. So I will set the stage uh, by introducing that, uh, making us understand the 17th century. So understanding paradigm shift in Mauritania's uh, literature and intellectual sphere, particularly the shift to the vast general. It is important to draw attention to the era of its emergence and some of the factors that led to it. So a bring journey for 17th century Mauritania, the context of its reported emergence is a